Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a song of ice and fire, episode 114, Davos 1 in A Dance with Dragons. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana, and I want to offer a correction. I think that Chloe said the title <laughs> of this book wrong. I think it's supposed to be pronounced Adoida? Adoida? It has been... It was actually on the tip of my tongue. I, I will confess. It? it was hard. I, I hesitated a little because I did think of our dear friend Michael, bookshelf stud, who we had on back in the old Theon Reek days, uh, and our, our different comprehensions of the book titles, like Acock, Asos, mm-hmm. and Adawara, the Afak. classic rendering. Yes. Afak. But we have no Afak. We have no Afak chapters of Davos, really. I mean, yeah, we do and we don't. Yeah, Afak off. Yeah. It's a little harsh, I guess. You don't have to affic off. Whoa. Well, no no a feast for crows. Yes, this is a dance with dragons, a dawada, uh, affectionately a dawada. And it's just weird to say that we're back in a dance with dragons. It's definitely feels like it's been a minute. I guess it's been a minute because Davos has a lot of chapters up through Storm. Mm-hmm. But we're back in dance and things are dark, things are moody, things are gloomy. But you know what isn't gloomy is our friend Steffi, who sent in pictures of their dog, Mia, in a little jacket. Yes. It had a rather lovely message. So a big thank you to Steffi for sending that email. I, I'm not the dog person on the podcast, right? That's Eliana. I have a video in my phone of Eliana talking to a dog outside back when we were allowed outside. Uh, talking to a dog, just a random dog, and making friends with it. And she is our dog whisperer. I'm the cat person, but a dog in a jacket, that gets me every time. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, thank you for sending this to us. We love, I guess, by we, turns out it means me. I love dog content, and a couple of people have been sending their animals to us, and I appreciate that. We also got an axolotl, and that was exciting. So. Yes. Lots of animals in that one. There were like a lot of animals going on there. Really appreciated that. Speaking of animals, though. I'm feeling a little goaty, you know, a little oh. black goat of Kohori, if you will, this month, Eliana. I thought we meant birdie, but yeah, there is <laughs> there is a, a couple of animal-esque things coming up for you this month. Yeah, so Kohor and the black goat. But not just the goat. Yeah, our Patreon episode this month, our special episode, will be a Song of Ice and Fire themed for patrons in the Stranger tier, the $5 tier and above. That's over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We are going to talk about Kohor, which it turns out there's a lot more going on kind of related to the plot we're talking about with Davos and Stannis and a lot of the different mm-hmm. comings and goings in the North, so... I'm excited to get into that. That is the first animal business we have for you this month in January. Yeah. And then the next one, also for patrons of our Discord for Thunder Tier and above. As we've said, for the past few months, we've been doing some brunch slash happy hours on the weekends. Not every weekend, once a month on our Discord. And this month is going to be probably around January 30th. uh, That weekend, the last weekend of January. And it is going to be burb themed yeah our friend cassidy one of our patrons over at the discord is having a birthday a name day a so burb we day. Are celebrating a burb day happy burb day cassidy. i think i made that joke last last episode but Did it's still we? not old <laughs> i'm so i'm so predictable i probably shamed you for it but 
you know, here we are. So happy birthday to Cassidy. And basically what we're doing during brunch is settling down, having a drink, non-alcoholic or alcoholic with each other in the voice and video chat on Discord. And a handful of our friends on Discord will be doing presentations that are bird-themed. I've already seen some sneak previews of them Mm. in Google Slides. They're going to be good. And I know Cassidy will be bringing the most birdiest of them all as a uh, a bird expert, a field agent of birds, of birdery. So come hang out with us on Discord. As you can tell, we get up to a lot of shenanigans. Uh, Someone... I don't know who, but somebody changed our movies channel to Soviet cinema recently. Who would do that? It's a lot of, it's Eliana, but a lot of stuff is just happening there. And we talk about a lot of food, a lot of food. Um, it's made up of uh, us, you, me, a bunch of bird brains. A bunch <laughs> and... of bird brains. <laughs> well, yeah. we're going to talk about uh, a bird brain in this episode. Actually, he's not. Davos is very smart. That's what happens a lot throughout this episode. <laughs> yeah, he actually shows himself pretty well. Now, we are getting to the last handful, or not Hand handful, if full. you're Davos, uh, of chapters here in A Dance with Dragons, right? And then we have to go to a new point of view character. And we're not going to talk about it this week. You're Mm -mm. not going to find out yet. You, the public, if you're listening to this on a Friday, breezy morning or afternoon, stretching, going for a walk, doing the dishes. I don't know what you do. Hopefully wholesome things. We're a wholesome podcast. We're very wholesome. Absolutely. We're a family-friendly podcast. Yeah. (laughs) And... But I hope that if you are listening to this, you are sitting here yearning, wanting to know who's next. And we'll delve into those waters as we get to them. But patrons in the Thunder tier and above, same patrons who have access to our Discord, are going to find that information out very soon. Sooner sooner than you think. So it it might be sooner than you think. <laughs> it might be sooner than Eliana thinks. I'm it could just going to be snap. closer than you think. You're just going to wake knows? up everyone and you're going to have a I, I forgot the exact line. <sighs> well, before we do all that, we're going to spend a few more moments with Davos in a Storm of Swords before we get to dancing, before we get to a Doida. And, and a little tinge of that Acock, just the tip of it. And... You know, dance, of course, we all know this. It begins a new arc for Davos, right? He's kind of been reborn again. Um, and obviously, we talked a little bit about that reborn sort of uh, idea in Davos' story after the Blackwater. But if you consider his entire arc in A Storm of Swords, and that we kind of do think that he dies in Feast. But, like, I mean, I don't know if anyone really believed that. But, like, kind of. It was kind of like the effect that George was going for. But... We've been laying it on throughout this entire read-through that Davos' story, it's really intertwined with questions about faith. And in A Clash of Kings, right, Davos still thinks of Stannis as a god. He even calls him as such, right? He's provided him with food, shelter, security, status, and he has a very blind faith. He's following anything that Stannis asks of him, even when it comes to the potential detriment to himself and even to Stannis. It's shown by him helping with the Shadow Baby assassination at Storm's End. And, of course, all of this later on culminates with a sacrifice to an extent of his four sons at the Blackwater. And quite fittingly, the Blackwater and the wildfire there is described as a demon, which kind of stands in contrast to the goddess Stannis. 
Storm of Swords then shows that Davos baptized in the waters of the Blackwater. He's reborn. He's renewed in his faith to the Seven. But he also comes back with quite a different religious philosophy around faith and duty when it comes to his king. That duty does not require unquestioning faith, but for those who would live righteously to, in fact, really question and take action and in doing so strengthen uh, their, their sort of belief. And Davos, again, still exhibits faith and loyalty to Stannis, but he is a changed man who's listening to his own better angels rather than being tempted by Stannis's demons. And the Davos in A Clash of Kings, who kept silent when lords with more status captained his sons to death, that same Davos who rose Mel into the belly of Storm's End, he ends up going against uh, another higher lord. He goes against Axel Florence wishes to be hand. He disobeys Stannis in freeing Edric Storm. And so he has this new theology, right? Where duty and piety require this really critical internal discourse with one's faith. But as Davos progresses in this new theology, it's interesting that a large part of the Storm chapters actually have him arguing against Melisandre. Because I think that you can sort of argue that they are similar in some ways when it comes to being faithful, right? Both believe that perhaps the wheels of fate or their own God's wills require a bit of a nudge on their part in order to make it happen, as opposed to just like their gods are all powerful. Mel, it's pretty obvious how that happens in terms of like, I'm going to just wave my hands and point to look at everything that she has done in the past few books. And for Davos, it comes with his attempts to assassinate Melisandre or freeing Edric, of course. It's a huge turning point for his character and for Stannis's. And both Mel and Davos believe so fervently in their respective phase that they are willing to cross seas. They're willing to just leave their homes for extended periods of time to do this. Mel, of course, is from Essos. We don't actually know, though, if she has any living family or a home, per se. And I assume we'll find out more about this in the Winds of Winter one day. Someday, I, too, have blind faith in some things. Um, and though we say that Davos <laughs> should go home, we if we put his story side by side with Melisandre, I think that we may be able to understand that Part of the reason he doesn't go home, even though he should, is because of this religious calling he has to Stannis. It, it's beyond, like, logic. It's, it's belief and faith. It's religion. So how far are either of them willing to go for the will of their god, right? Dance very much sets the stage of that for both of them, right after Davos coming off of, like, this is a line for me. Um, and we see... Melisandre's devotion for the first time in her chapter and Davos, right? Like, it, it's very much real and we're seeing that and are going to jump into that with this chapter. Yeah, and that internal discourse that you kind of discussed that Davos is beginning to have with himself, it's interesting to watch him flip from uh, doing maybe the wrong thing and going along with what's happening to now having the power and having that shift of power from becoming the king's hand and being able to kind of stand up for what he believes in much like we saw Ned do and what we'll talk about with some more Ned and Davos parallels later. And in this book, he especially seems to be finally almost coming to grapple with the loss of his sons, right? Like, not only the loss of everything in the Blackwater of their lives, but also the loss of, like, fatherhood, mm -hmm. of losing the opportunity of parenting them, of being able to be proud of these boys who have become so 
so skilled, right, in rising so high in Stannis's group that died too young. Like, Davos is finally reckoning with that, where he spent a lot of a storm of swords in denial. He's still in denial in this book, but he's charting his own course to find his own answers, it feels like. We'll see how his course comes along, being further away from Stannis. I think that comes maybe more in, you know, the Winds of Winter. Like, we'll Mm -hmm. dig deeper into that, but we're seeing the groundwork for that here. And yeah, as you said, it's interesting. He's giving up that resignation when it comes to fatherhood. And it makes me think of Crescent, right? Who saw Stannis as a son. Is there is there an aspect of Davos that also, beyond seeing Stannis as a sort of figurehead for faith for him, sees him sort of as a f- son? I don't know. And I think love yeah. is a way to describe all of these things too, right? He does love Stannis. Like the brother that he didn't have and that he could have been for Stannis. He just wishes that when he was younger, he was able to have fulfilled that role that Stannis obviously didn't have fulfilled. And maybe, yeah, that's how Stannis feels about Davos. I don't know. Maybe. And I think that's another way that their relationship mirrors the relationship between Robert and Ned. Yeah, big time. This chapter, if anything, does a lot to illustrate Robert and Ned and maybe some of that alienation they may have felt. You know, like uh, Robert with this big war that was basically, yes, it was because of Ares, but also a little bit because of Lyanna. At some point, you know, at some point the rage happened because Rhaegar took that girl. You know what I mean? A couple times in that tower and out of the tower and back in the tower. But I digress. We don't need to talk about the fornications that happened (laughs) in the prince's pass, if you know what I mean. Because he made some passes at Lyanna Stark. Uh, (laughs) I wish you could see Eliana's face. I'm like, what's happening? Uh, but 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 so that's a big rift, right? Yeah. Like, and also the way Robert treated Liana, uh, like she was disposable, like she was every uh, other highborn lady, you know, just disposable for him. And I think that that rift, it's not the same as Davos's four sons dying mm-hmm. out at sea, and possibly, you know, Devin dying. Like, it's not the same as that loss necessarily. But it's similar in terms of the rift, right? Like that Ned felt this rift grow between him and Robert. And when they came back, that rift was obviously quite apparent. And it wasn't just because of Lyanna. It was also because of the children. And because he knew he couldn't trust his best friend Mm -hmm. in not killing the children. To not kill kids. Yeah. And I I mean, that's where we are, round circle. Or to not take kids hostage, right? And I mean, that's something Mm -hmm. that we see is the case with Sanus. It's something that Renly was like... You know what's an interesting idea, Ned Stark, in the wake of the death of my eldest brother? What if we took some kids hostage? That sounds fun, right? It's just like a weird Baratheon like family thing. The seat is strong, you know? Yeah. <sighs> Feudalism is so fucked up. Anyway, we've got a lot to talk about. Family We're going to talk feudalism. about that and more. Family feudalism. Oh my god. I have to write this down really quick. Hold on. Well, we're going to talk about all of this and more within our episode. But before we get there, ours is the Fury. We have lots of lightning to cover. A big old lightning round. We have a lot to cover. We're going to cover a little bit of what you missed in Storm, Feast, and then, of course, Get Us to Dance. So, first up, John 10 in A Storm of Swords. 
Stannis and his men arrive in the north to save the Watch from a rather bloody fate. Cersei Four: A Feast for Crows Queen Regent Cersei Lannister! Reports North has received a smuggler. Davos was sent to White Harbor to negotiate with Lord Wyman Manderley. She demands Davos's execution in exchange for the life of his son, Willis Manderley. Bum bum ba ba ba. Cersei Five: A Feast for Crows. Davos has been beheaded, or so we think. Lord Manderley swears it, and the phrase confirm it as well. Jamie Three: A Feast for Crows. Jamie releases Willis from Harrenhal. He boards ship from Maidenpool for White Harbor. This throws us right on into a da wida. A da wida. First, we have the prologue where Varamir is dying and he must seek and take another body. Tyrion won. After traveling across the sea, Illyrio tells Tyrion of the three headed dragon. Daenerys won. Petitions are brought in front of her magnificence, including the bones of a child, at her children's expense. John won. Stannis' camp is demanding, and John must learn to juggle Stannis' demands, as well as the free folks, all while heeding the warnings of Stannis' red priestess Melisandre. Bran won. Bran hunts through Summer's eyes, finding shelter for the group. Later, he fights a war with dead men of the Watch surrounding them. Cold hands makes them pig, <laughs> and they continue their journey. Tyrion too, smuggled along the Rhoyne, Illyrio spins Tyrion a tale of how he and Varys infiltrated the Westerosi government. <laughs> Tyrion opens up part of himself to Illyrio as well as they make their way through Andalos. The Merchant's Man Quentin Martell and his most loyal men make for Marine on a grand adventure. John too. John must kill the man and let the boy escape. Wait, what? I I don't know if that's right. That can't be right. <laughs> it's close. It's close to that, right? <laughs> but what? <laughs> Tyrion three. Tyrion begins to meet Griff's crew and promises to serve the queen loyally. And that brings us here to Davos one Adawada. The loyal Onion Knight says hallelujah, sisters, and is brought in front of Lord Godric Borel, who doesn't quite seem lordly. Godric and Davos find common ground in shearing bread and salt, and Davos is given a chance to save King Stannis' cause. This has been one of the most hunger-inducing chapters. We'll get there. I know, I, I had to make sure I ate right before this, but I'm already thinking about it. I know. Mouth-watering. Same. You know what else is delicious? Absolutely delectable is the imagery, though, mm. because this chapter opens up. Lightning split the northern sky, etching the black tower of the night lamp against the blue-white sky. Six heartbeats later came the thunder, like a distant drum. Yes, Davos has marched across a black bridge. Beneath a rusting porcullis, with green water surging below, they reach another gatehouse covered in green algae. And he's prodded to go up the steps and brought into a chamber with threadbare mirish carpet. The guard removes his cloak and Davos repeats to courtesy. We find a lord that is alone making a supper of beer, bread, and sister stew with 20 iron sconces lining the wall, none lit, uh, two 
candles give a meager light against the lashing of the rain. So as Chloe said, a lot of strong imagery opening this chapter up. And I really love what it says here with the torches, right? It tells us what to expect of the people of the three sisters as we see them later on throughout this chapter, that they're they're very, I think, thrifty people. You know, there's something to it, uh, this, the fingers, right? What mm. we see through Sansa with little finger as they visit the fingers mm. and how just like how it's kind of an ignored area of this super metropolitan, you know, slick place, the Vale, where everyone is fashionable and lives on top of a fucking mountain and they yeah. have pulleys to get them up. Like, it's definitely seems like a very classist society, especially because you have, like, later... So you have the webbing, right, between... the Anyone from the Three Sisters might have the webbing between their fingers, but, like, that's literally something that happens in evolution because you live somewhere where water levels keep rising. Oh, I didn't know that. I looked it up and learned a little bit about it because I was just so intrigued to see, like... That is interesting. Yeah, so, I don't know, to me that kind of screams straight up global climate change. <laughs> like, that's straight up, like, these people are getting fucked because they live on the outskirts of the Vale that no one fucking gives a shit about, and it's, like, completely trash castle, right? Like, it's not upkept, yeah. he's not, you know, the brushes aren't, the rushes aren't being lit in every room, and it's not some beautiful, humble home. Welcome to our gorgeous castle of MTV Cribs. Like, this is just, like, Here's my big stone fucking keep, and I have one light in this room. Yeah, but they eat good. They eat good. Well, but that's all that matters, right? Like, I'd rather live in trash but eat good. Kinda. I I do feel that way, but, like... (laughs) I'm just saying. I I actually really like this next part. I wish I would have read this chapter last week when we were talking about the last chapter in Storm, because I might have answered a couple of my own questions, but... (laughs) It's that a reread. Yeah, it's a reread. I'm answering my questions as we go. It's our podcast. We're going through our own growth arc, all right? All the um, characters get to do it in this fucking story. We do too. I'm on a really good arc where I keep hating Stannis more and more. And it's my podcast and I'm allowed to do that. Anyways, so we get this passage. My lord, said the captain, we found this man in the belly of the whale trying to buy his way off the island. He had twelve dragons on him, and this thing, too. The captain put it on the table by the lord, a wide ribbon of black velvet trimmed with cloth of gold bearing three seals, a crowned stag stamped in gold and beeswax, a flaming heart in red, a hand in white. So last episode, we talked a little bit about the beast of the revelations and the whore of Babylon, and that idea of Davos is coming with the mark of the beast, right? And there's a lot about seals in this book. The the pink letter is pretty prominent, right? That comes to mind. You get the pink seal, the the, the pink letter, right? That's the big deal, Ramsay's pink letter. Uh, and you get this seal right here. And I didn't pay a lot of attention to this the first handfuls or two handfuls of times through, but it is kind of like bringing the mark of the beast. Religiously, mm. you have this religion that's frowned upon uh, Stannis' seal and a hand in white and it's like these are not the traditional seals of the king uh, Brienne with the Lannister seal right now going around for example right sleeps with lions it's just not something you flash around always but I thought that was interesting because we talked about the prophets and false prophets having the mark of the beast and Davos is out here out here shoosting Stannis right now you know saying hey here he is here's his heart 
Interesting, interesting stuff. I found my answer this mm-hmm. week is all I'm saying. But I do want to come back to the storytelling and the mechanic being used here of the belly of the whale, which is in the hero's journey, the final separation from the hero's known world and their selves. So when the hero enters this stage of literally being in the belly of the whale or the belly of the beast, they're showing willingness to undergo metamorphosis. And Davos is still changing, as we see. Often they get a minor setback when they're in this stage, though. So that is definitely something we see happen right as he gets to the Manderlies. And they're like, here's your setback. Go to Skagos. We see this in a lot of other media. Book of Jonah, right? The Book of Jonah mirrors a lot of Davos's art. Across the story, he refuses God's command to prophesy the destruction of Nineveh, and he tries to flee, and a storm rises, and the sailors all blame Jonah. They're like, you did this. It is your fault for refusing God. It was kind of true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was. And he, he sacrifices himself, though. He tosses himself overboard, and he ends up getting saved by being swallowed by a fish. And he commits himself to God over the next three days, and then he's vomited on the shore to preach God's will. So it's kind of Davos, right, at Blackwater. He gets vomited on the shore. Somehow he survives. He's spit out of the belly of the beast. And once more, here he is being spit literally out of the belly of the whale. And there's even something in this that reminds me of Pinocchio. Uh, It's another Mm -hmm. really big telling of belly of the whale. Geppetto tries to save his son. So like Davos trying to give his sons a better life. And Geppetto goes out to sea but gets swallowed by Monstro the whale. Pinocchio ends up in the belly of the whale with him. And he helps save his father from the belly of the whale or from being consumed by the power of the whale. Pinocchio proves himself brave, truthful, and selfless by risking his life to travel these depths of the ocean. And he gets rewarded with becoming a real boy. Which... Feels pretty, I don't know, pretty interesting as a parallel for Davos because Hmm. this whole plot is becoming a real lord instead of a smuggler, right? I'm a real boy. I'm a real lord. Uh, So there's something happening here, like in an interesting play on maybe with Devin. I don't know. I'm pretty of the camp. He's going to die. Maybe that's what will unfortunately get Davos to realize, oh, that sucks. Um, I don't think that he'll know, to be fair. Like, I think it would be like an after effect of him finding out. But I'm pretty sure he... Like, Ned in the first book is pretty much disconnected from Devin, like Ned and Sansa. But who knows? Or he could survive in the way that Sansa was kind of used to get Ned, right, to follow certain orders. Yeah. And and survived. Devin could definitely be used that way against Davos as well. But... I kind of feel like he's other bait. You know, like, I feel like the others are gonna... I just see, like, Stannis' camp getting ravaged by others at some point, I'm sure, in the winter, and probably losing people to them. Yeah, or John saves Devin. He's like, hey, look, I have this kid. Do you know this yeah, kid, Davos? maybe he'll help Davos see the light. Not that light, the other light. <laughs> but the discussion about the belly of the whale, I think, is is definitely something, and you know, you were discussing how it signals a change, it's a transformation, it, it's a big part, right, of the hero's journey and their quest as they sort of, sometimes it's called descending into the underworld, right? And mm-hmm. it's something, that phrasing specifically, is something that George seems to like when he's also bringing in a lot of that religious, that faith aspect into 
the story and with characters facing those trials, the opening line of the Forsaken, which is an Aaron Dampere chapter, and we all know he's a really religious character, is it was always midnight in the belly of the whale. So that's something he brings up. Yeah, that's interesting, especially because it's something that I like to follow with George. He likes to make these characters that are already in their arc. Right, like Aaron Dampere, like his arc started a long time ago, and George fills us in on the backstory mm. of what we've missed, you know, on his transformation, his rebirth into the drowned god. So that's a really great parallel here, since Davos has a lot of drowned god imagery happening here, and Davos is brought to us already in the middle of his hero's arc. Like the next few steps are transformation, atonement, and return. So. Fitting that to the rest of the plot, we can kind of get a sense of where this might be going in some aspects. Yeah. And, I mean, who knows where it'll go? Because I don't know that Aaron's Aaron Dampere story, right, necessarily. I don't know that he comes out of the belly of the whale or whatnot. Yeah, um, I don't know if Aaron Dampere gets a full hero's arc, sadly. I exactly. I think he's gonna unfortunately drown at one of his stages. I I mean I think I, I think so. I don't know that he makes it out. But he's we got not, two chapters. Yeah. Sorry if we we're giving too many spoilers, friends, but when's winter one day? <laughs> I don't know. I thought he'd make it to Ados, you know what I mean, man? He could. I mean he could. I just don't know he makes it out of the story alive. Will I make it to Ados? Uh, also we true. <laughs> that's a great that's a great point. That's a good question. <laughs> And, I mean, that's a question Davos has here right now, right? He's wet and dripping, his wrists have begun to chafe. One wrong word, and he'd hang from the gallows gate at Sisterton. But at least he's no longer in the rain, although he feels worn thin by grief, betrayal, and storms. Yeah, he's being like Jon Snow levels of drama this chapter. It's pretty good. Uh, The Lord wipes his mouth, picking up the ribbon with the seals displayed upon it, and frowns at them. Davos counts the steps before the thunder comes again. He listens to the roaring beneath him, the swirling that's going throughout the dungeons, thinking how lucky he is not to be down in the dungeons. No, he tried to tell himself. A smuggler might die that way, but not a king's hand. I'm worth more if he sells me to his queen. His queen, of course, who is Cersei. So we're beginning to see Davos feel a bit more comfortable now in his position as Hand while simultaneously still embracing his past as a smuggler as he thinks about the sisters and their history. And the way that he interacts with Lord Borel, I think this chapter is very interesting compared to Davos's previous interactions with many of the noblemen, especially the Reachmen. The sistermen, though they are lords, they haven't forgotten their roots, which very much intersect with Davos's own. And though there's some politicking and barbs exchange, we see that Burrell actually seems to regard Davos with quite a bit of respect, especially compared to those other lords. Yeah, as we traverse through the chapter, we almost see that, like, Godric is who Davos could be if he doesn't pick his side finally. Yeah. You know, back in the Rainwood, just hanging out in his little house. This is who he could be. Truly, and he could, I mean, he could eat well, probably. I hope so. I would hope that for Davos. He deserves sister stew. I deserve sister I stew deserve every sister night. Stew. <laughs> uh, I want eight bowls. So Lord Godric Borel was ugly, bald, with a lumpy nose, red with broken veins, and webbed fingers on his right hand. Davos had heard tale of the three sisters and their webbed digits, but he had thought it was a sailor's story. 
the Lord demands Davos be cut free and to display his hands to him. He's cut free and the lightning strikes as he's cut loose, outlining his shortened fingers across Godric Burrell's face. Any man can steal a ribbon, the Lord said, but those fingers do not lie. You are the Onion Knight. Man, that's so dramatic and really convenient for everyone that there was a lightning flash at that moment. <laughs> what what is this, home? a CW show? I know, right? Riverdale, but... I'm waiting for Lord oh Godric Burrell to stand up with his ale and go walk to the fireplace and just drink slowly while he tells Davos the story of his history. Yeah, pretty much. And then, like, they're they're negotiating. One of them's like, let me tell you about the Black Hood. <laughs> Also, he has to be, like, the ugliest CW old man actor, which means he's at least, like, a California 7. At least. You know what I mean? Which is a better 7 than anywhere else it's in like the country. It's like a 10, I think, everywhere yeah, It's like a 10 anywhere. Because of inflation and the cost of Beauty living. Beauty okay? inflation. And the cost of living in California. God. The cost of being your looks. Uh, Godric Burrell, a seven in California. Probably, he's probably actually not, but if this were Riverdale, he would be for real, though. At least a six, you know. Yeah. Um, speaking of appearances here, though, I think what's interesting—that <laughs> was a decent segue, Chloe. It was good. I, I laughed because it was good. Thank Go you. on. Thank you. I'll give you that one. All right. Um, but yeah, appearances, and and I want to come back to. Melisandre's line of how a glamour can be spun from anything that has a strong connection to a person. And I see it as very much meaning a strong connection to how a person is perceived, right? The symbols that call to mind that person, such as how onions are strongly associated with Davos, or how the sigils uh, function with wolves standing in for the Starks. The finger bones, of course, are something that we all really, really strongly associate with Davos. A lot of the chapters drive that home when he reaches for the bag of finger bones, uh, which is one of the examples, right, that Melisandre gives of an object that can be used to make a glamour. And we know from the same book in the Arya chapters that glamours can actually potentially be seen through by someone who has a perceptive eye or, you know, in the case of Aemon and the False Lightbringer, someone who does not only see using their sight, their eyes. Many take Melisandre's line to mean that she has a bag of finger bones and she's going to use that to glamour someone into pretending to be Davos. But I think what we actually see in terms of how strong the association of the lost fingers are with Davos is that it actually works the other way around, right? Here, Burrell demands to see Davos' fingers and that gives him the proof he needs to be like, yo, that's the Onion Knight, because he says that ribbons can be stolen and, I mean, technically they can also be forged. But we see that Wyman Manderley actually essentially does glamour someone without magic when he sends Davos's bones to Cersei, but instead of using that bag of finger bones, what he does is he cuts off the fingers from a man who looks like Davos and then has him dipped in tar. The kindly man describes the process of making glamours to Arya as weaving light and shadow and desire to make illusions that trick the eye. And I think that the desire is the most important part, not not the weaving of the light and the shadow. It's that desire to believe so strongly in the symbols standing in for the men beneath them. It feels like there's a metaphor somewhere in here. Dunno, just putting that out there. Maybe to like politics. 
mm-hmm. to regimes and I don't know, maybe. Anyways, maybe maybe I something do... about varies, you know. Hmm. Maybe. Well, I do want to say I think it's interesting that Boral would rather look at the fingers because not only is it because ribbons could be stolen or forged, but also because he doesn't value those ribbons the way he values the name or the word mm. of the famed smuggler, right? That's Davos's true. fame is worth more to him, as we'll talk about soon, in money than anyone else's would be. So I think that's really interesting, just the way that uh, it's very obvious, especially here, and we'll get into some of the other Vale houses as we talk about them and before the Winds of Winter, that they are they don't answer just to crown authority. Something else rules them, and that something else is real money. Yeah, I, that's a that's a great point regarding where he's putting his faith. It's it's in Davos, and uh, I was just thinking when it comes to fingers, right, and wanting that as proof. I mean. As we'll see, House Burrell has their own kind of version of that, right? With their mark yeah. of how to tell who's a Burrell and who's not. Yeah. Davos agrees, though, because he's been called far worse than everything Burrell's been saying, right? Like, Burrell's like, you're the onion knight. He's like, okay, true. <laughs> so <laughs> Good <what>? job. They're delicious. <laughs> I'm Caramelize delicious. it, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Burrell's like, I did it. It's in your stew, bitch. Uh, Godric offers him some words that Davos has heard before, right? He calls him a traitor. He calls him a rebel, a turncloak. And Davos bristles. He's like, I'm a king's man, never disloyal. And Godric says, yeah, but that's only depending on who believes Stannis is king, right? Like, if Stannis is king, who's he king to? Uh, And again, John vibes, right? Traitor, rebel, turncloak, motherless. Damned. Damned. <sighs> so dramatic. Hysterically, though, John is having to deal with Stannis at the wall, and Davos is cleaning yeah. up Stannis's other messes. So John probably doesn't think it's that hysterical, as we've discussed. Yeah, John's tired. John is a tired boy. He's tired. He's like, I kind of like Stannis, but everything else that comes with him, he's like, it's so emotionally draining. <laughs> <laughs> Stannis is great in, like, a concept. I've been watching a lot of the final table, the cooking show, and everything is like, I, don't know I conceptualized a minimalized this, that, whatever, and uh, that's kind of how this is. Mm. Davos okay. is just able to compartmentalize, okay? He's he does compartmentalize, though. <laughs> he really does. I mean, how else do you just move on? I mean, maybe he's not. Maybe this is his very strange morning process. That's something we can discuss later on. <laughs> Godric asks if he's returned to the old trade, and Davos says, no, I am sent here as a king's hand to bring message to White Harbor and their lord. And Godric's like, you're in the wrong place. You're in Sisterton, on Sweet Sister, where smugglers stay. Davos remembers this, of course, because he used to have his own smuggling days here on Sisterton. He remembers it. He knows the scent. The scent is gross. It smells like pig fish, rotting. Its streets are muddy and planks, and they live in hovels with straw roofs, and there are hanged men decorating the gate, the gallows gate. Godric is like, I imagine you have some friends here, Davos, as all smugglers have friends here on Sisterton. Yeah, it's like some fucking... Reminds me of a place in Bloodborne. I didn't play it, but I watched people play it, and that's what it sounds like. Um, Godric even has his own friends here. Uh, who are smugglers on Sisterton. 
And the ones that aren't his friends, he hangs and he strangles them slowly. You know, hot girl shit. And he asks why Davos has come to Sisterton. If he means to make for White Harbor. And Davos says, Storms. There were 29 ships, right? So when Davos started their journey, there were 29 ships leaving the wall. And if half of those 29 ships were still floating, he would be shocked because there were black skies, lashing rains, and hounded them down the coast. And Oledo and Old Mother's son drove into Skagos' rocks. Things are going well. Remember that it's that Isle of Unicorns and Cannibals where even the blind bastard had feared to land. Uh, that's how it's described. And then the Kogsatho sun went down in the Great Cliffs, and then the bountiful harvest rigging was ripped away, slamming into another galley and sinking it, and the rest of the Lycine fleet scattered across the sea. Went really well. Amazing time. Yeah. Salador's unhappy, but that's saying the least, right? Yeah. We have this wonderful passage, very colorful, so I'm very excited to include it. Salador the beggar, that's what your king has made me. Salador's son complained to Davos as the remnants of his fleet limped across the bite. Salador the smashed! Where are my ships and my gold? Where is all the gold I was promised? When Davos had tried to assure him he would have his payment, Salah had erupted. When? When? On the morrow, on the new moon, when the red comet comes again? He is promising me golden gems, always promising, but this gold I have not seen. I have his word he is saying, oh yes, his royal word, he writes it down. Can Salador-san eat the king's word? Can he quench his thirst with parchments and waxy seals? Can he tumble promises into a feather bed and fuck them till they squeal? Yeah, he makes some solid points, I'd say. I'd say, uh, paper sucks, so give me money paper. Yes. That, yeah, he's like, what can promises by me? It also reminds me a little bit of the speech. Who is it? Alaria. Yes, the... Mm-hmm. Could it fuck me, take me to bed about the skull? Yes, about the skull and about vengeance. Yep. It absolutely reminds me of Alaria's Ilaria's speech, which is in this same book. But yeah, it, it feels very much like that. So, interesting. Davos tries to persuade Salador to stay true to the cause! He's like, King Tommen's not likely to pay Stannis's debts, after all, and Solidor's only hope, then, is Stannis winning. Uh, but turns out Davos doesn't really have this lordly honeyed tongue that he needs. He's just an onion knight, and Solidor is pissed. On Dragonstone, I was patient, he said, when the Red Woman burned wooden gods and screaming men. <laughs> all the long way to the wall, I was patient. At Eastwatch, I was patient and cold. Oh, so very cold. Bah, I say. Bah to your patience. Bah to your king. My men are hungry. They are wishing to fuck their wives again, to count their sons, to see the stepstones and the pleasure gardens of lease, ice and storms and empty promises. These, they are not wanting. This north is much too cold and getting colder. Yeah, to count their sons. Seems like... Good activity. Go home, fuck your wife, count your sons. Uh, but Davos, you should do it. Davos, it's it's, a, it's an interesting idea. You know, it's an interesting idea. Um, you know, he's known the day would come eventually, and thought he was fond of the old rogue. And he's like, but he was never so great a fool as to trust in him. And I'm like, but what if you did? You know, what if he had good ideas? That's that's bullshit. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's bullshit, Davos. You are so far up your asshole, up Stannis's asshole, in denial because Salador has done nothing but go out on a motherfucking limb for you. Who was there to pick your bitch ass up off of your new rock crab home? Who? Salador. Salador swung his ships around and said, go save that fucking fool who's hanging out on the rock. Who? Who told him, like, yo, don't murder the Red Witch because you will die. Like, they will find out and throw you in jail. And he was like, nah, I have this. And Davos kept going and he got thrown in. Salador is always there. And guess what? Salador is not going to be there anymore. Davos, this is it. Because obviously Davos didn't hit rock bottom enough on that fucking rock in A Clash of Kings. He needs to hit real rock bottom, but... Salador's not going to be there anymore, man. Mm-mm. He went out for you. You are being a dick bag, dude. And he's like, I always knew I couldn't trust him because he thought that Salador sold him out, right? He thought Salador sold him out in his like assassination attempt of Melisandre. And, you know, I I don't know how it happened, once again, when it comes to this, but, you know, Salador San, you and me, Chloe, we are Salador Stans. We are Salador Stans. <laughs> <laughs> so much. I don't even like you that but much. But it's so true, though, because like <sighs> he, I mean, you're right. He went out on a limb for Davos quite a few times. He's like, you know what? Let's just like let's just leave. You don't have to like stick around. You don't have to stick your neck out for this guy, right? Fuck your corporate Stannis Bezos overlord. He's not gonna give you anything but grief, and like, I, I, he's done quite a lot, and he's lost a lot on behalf of trusting his friend. Yeah. I mean, that's like... Yeah. Your friend gets you a job, and then the job abuses the shit out of you, and you're like, I'm bleeding in an alleyway and can't keep going to work, bro. He's like, and I gotta like, leave. bro, come to work, bro. <laughs> like, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> and I'm, not, I, I'm like, just like... I'm not trying to, like, shit on Davos here. I'm just trying to defend Solidor. <laughs> It, it, I, I am mad at Davos, though, because it's like, I don't want to be mad at him. I love the man to death, and I get it. Everything I have, I have because of Stannis, but it's like, but you Stannis can have other means things. nothing yeah, also. You- so, like, you have nothing. You get that, right? That's what Salador is telling you, is like, he's gone through all these battles alongside you, and Salador has not been rewarded for anything. He has no titles. He has no new fancy ships. He has no home. He has no beautiful wife and children. Uh, where is my beautiful wife? Where am I? T- he has none of it. Uh, 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 he's telling you, bro. He's standing next to you and saying, Davos, my man, my man with the plan or without the plan, I should say. Uh, you should jump and get out of the sinking ship. Like this company's going to fold is what I'm telling you. And you're going to lose your job. Yeah. And I don't know if it's like Davos has put all his eggs in this basket. I don't know if it's necessarily that or if it's like he's just gone in too deep, right? He's already lost yeah. four sons. So he feels it as opposed to like that dissuading him and being like, I've given up enough, is it like a sunk cost fallacy, right? He's like, I have to see this through or else my son's deaths are in vain. Yeah. Like, so, why did I lose all of this and why did I do it? I get it. I know. I, I kind of wonder. Yeah, that's that's one explanation for it. But other the other explanation is obviously for the plot. Um, <laughs> for the plot, stab. The, the plot's pretty important in, you know, in this book series, so... It's pretty important in the Bridgerton book series. I just want to put that out there. I'm on uh, book four. I read book three in one night last night. It's going great. I kind of skipped the sex scenes. They're a little too much, but 
It's just like, I don't want to read about you rubbing shit, you know, and it's just over it. I know how sex works. Uh, but not quite as good as Bridgerton, this series, you know? <laughs> gotcha. Yes, absolutely. For sure. Well, Godric Burrell speaks so fondly of storms, right? Like a lover, basically. And he's like, they were sacred here back before the Andals descended. They worshipped the Lady of the Waves and the Lord of the Skies who made storms every time they fucked. He says Davos was delivered to him by the storms, true, and turns to his captain, telling him this man was never here. <gasps> wow. Hmm. Juicy. There's a lot here that makes the storms, right, seem really perilous and they're really bad. And it kind of is like, so Davos, are you sailing on a doomed path, as we've been discussing? And I think it especially comes forward, right, in terms of the discussions we've been having of Stannis also as a storm, right? Same as all the other Baratheons before him. And of course, we have quite a few reminders here of uh, storms and, and the origin of Storm's End, right? It was the result of the sea god and the goddess of the wind. They made love. They had a daughter, Elena, who was kidnapped by Durin. God's grief. Well, not kidnapped. I, I think they, they kind of just like eloped. And that brought the storms to Storm's End. Here, though, it's like the Lady of the Waves and the Lord of the Skies. A little bit of a gender flip, you know, mm. fun stuff like that. But yeah, so got a bit of that going on. Davos requests his release to White Harbor, though, as an act of friendship to his grace. And Godric thinks about it, but offers that, you know, I could also just send you to a cold, wet hell. And then Davos kind of fears the worst. He thinks, The three sisters were fickle bitches, loyal only to themselves. Supposedly they were sworn to the errands of the Vale, but the Eerie's grasp upon the islands was tenuous at best. Burrell says that if Lord Sunderland knew he was here, he'd be forced to hand Davos over. The poor man needs the gold with seven sons all determined to be knights, is is what Lord Sunderland has. Ah, uh, that was once Davos, right? Mm -hmm. That's so sad. But I think one of the biggest changes and one of the biggest progressions is that Davos would never give someone up for the gold, as we see with him with Edric, right? For power. Some of the lore being expanded here with the Three Sisters is great. It's expanded on much further in the world of Ice and Fire. I highly recommend reading that if you haven't. Further details the history of the sisters and also shows the Starks weren't kind of strangers to committing some, some pretty, pretty bad atrocities, right? The rape of the sisters was not great, and the Starks were too proud to let go of their conquered land, their coveted people, and instead, they kind of consumed the land and destroyed it and made a mess of it while fighting the Vale for it, right? The Aarons for it. A thousand years went by, and interestingly enough, as the story goes, I, I do love this, the Boltons were involved as well. Balthazar Bolton made a pink pavilion of hundreds of flayed men from the Vale area, and the Northerners allegedly cooked children and men from the sisters in pots. That's a legend. Who knows? It could be dramatic. Uh, but they executed thousands of warriors daily at the Headman's Mount during everything that went on in the Sisters. So kind of wild. And that being said, it reminds me of what the North is facing in a much lesser degree, right? Like, obviously, they're not flaying hundreds and thousands of people daily or anything yet over at Winterfell. But the situation's dire. It could, it could escalate. 
So interesting that parallel comes in with the people that are trying to deal with the North going on. And I think it's also laying a lot more, not just for the North in that manner, but also in the manner of another Northerner in the Vale, which is Sansa, right? Ned and the story that we'll learn soon about Ned going through the sisters and going through Sisterton. It's interesting that we have someone else in disguise trying not to be seen in the veil right now. It makes me wonder if Sansa might go through there mm. at all. But we've already met a few sistermen in the Sansa excerpt chapter, the Elaine excerpt chapter from The Winds of Winter. Have a few different sistermen, so yeah. we'll see where it goes. Some of them do kind of suck, though, but, you know... Well, you know. I don't... What is it with the Boltons? They have, like, the worst fucking arts and crafts projects. They're like, hmm... Let's let's play a bunch of men and then sew their skins into tents. I'm like, what? Why? No one wants that. Literally, no it one asks for like this. It feels like a lot of work. You could just like, you could like make cloth out of fiber from a field instead. Yeah. I don't know. A lot it of work. Could be like, they could be normal. You know, not trying to like shame anything, but this this deserves, I think, a bit of shaming. So. Anyway, <laughs> Davos thinks then, again, of his own seven sons, uh, the four that were burnt, and says that by rights, you know, Davos should be handed over to Lady Arryn, as Lord Sunderland is actually sworn to the Eyrie. Lord Godric gives him the news. Liza Arryn is dead, murdered by some singer. Fake news. Lord Littlefinger rules in her stead. Godric demands to know where the Lysini pirates are. Uh, they had spied the sails when they were on Little Sister, but Davos tells him, you know what, he's at sea. He's returning south to trouble the Lannisters, which is, that's also fake news. Yeah, alternative facts. Uh, the lie was one he had rehearsed as he rode toward Sisterton through the rain. Sooner or late, the world would learn Salador's son had abandoned Stannis Baratheon, leaving him without a fleet. But they would not hear it from the lips of Davos Seaworth, loyal to a fault. You know, interestingly enough, this reminds me of the situation with Catelyn on the way to the Eyrie with Tyrion when she was saying mm. they were going north the entire time, although it was obviously a lie, alternative facts to to throw people off the lead, right? I don't know, I thought that was interesting because a lot of this chapter is framed, it's similar to Eddard's journey as we go through it, framed as Eddard, but also framed as kind of, Catalan parallel as well. It reminds me of a storm of swords of Catalan traveling through the rain and the drudgery and going to deal with Walder Frey, who's very shrewd and doesn't deal in the same way as the rest of the Westerosi lords, right? Godric Burrell has a lot of Walder Frey parallels going on in the beginning, and each moment Davos is worried he's about to be betrayed by the man until the mask is revealed. Yeah. And Besides that, I think we also get, and we might probably see this more in the later chapters, some parallels with Quentin's story, but we'll come back to that later. Yeah. Right now, Davos is remembering his parting from Salador, who had the decency to give him an open boat to shore. Salador, again, had offered to take him south, but Davos refused, saying that he could not betray Stannis's trust. Bah, the pirate prince replied. He will kill you with these honors. Old friend, he will kill you. What does it mean? Hey, Eliana, when Salador's son in Davos 1, A Dance with Dragons, says, Bah, he will kill you with these honors, old friend, he will kill you. 
What was your textual analysis and your comprehension of that? Because I'm just really curious. I couldn't quite find an analytical way to look at it in which to arrange my thoughts. What does it mean? I mean, I don't know. What What do you think it means? What What does it mean when Solidor says this? What does it mean when Stannis sees a crowd of fire consuming him? I just, I just don't know. I, I have know. so many questions, and I think none of them will be answered. There are, there are just <gasps> no answers. There's no way to read any of this. Godric Burrell muses he's never had a king's hand beneath his roof, wondering if Stannis would ransom him. Davos wonders, too. He's like, yeah, he's poor, so I wonder. <laughs> uh, and Davos thinks, you know, he has no gold or he'd still have Salador, so probably won't, won't come get me. Davos offers he's at Castle Black if you want to go ask him. And Burrell's like, is the imp hiding there as well? Davos doesn't quite understand. He's been out of the news circuit for a while. He says, I thought the imp was awaiting his trial at King's Landing. And Godric's like, oh, God, no. The wall is last to know everything, dear Davos. The dwarf escaped, murdered his dad, and the queen is offering a lordship for his head. Ha ha ha, that's actually, all of this is actually true. All of this is not <laughs> fake news. And this is probably some of the most dramatic shit. Um, we were all there. We've all read these books. Anyway. All of this, though, about Stannis paying Solidor with promises, and then the news that we get about Tyrion escaping, right? And, of course, we get more of his own POVs in this book. It, it reminds me very much of Tyrion's own journey in Adawada, right? Because he, like Davos, is now without some of the best, like, name brand security, as in, like, he's probably worth more ransom than anything else. But now Tyrion's just like, eh, I don't know... People kind of just want me dead or alive. And Tyrion also secures the service of Brown Dunplum and his men with contracts and promises. And there's, I think, a big question of like, so is he really going to be able to deliver all this? Like all this casterly rock gold that he's promised? I don't know. <laughs> you got Davos, Tyrion, and John all doing a bro handshake, making promises they certainly can't keep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly cannot. Tyrion might be able to, he might not. That's a, that's a question. And I, I change my mind on it like with each day. It might not matter. To a certain yeah, extent. You know what? Uh, there might be three other winged motherfuckers that make good on Tyrion's words with their flames. You know? They're, yeah. They're, that's a nice little easy plot point. Or if he doesn't uh, want to make good on it, there are still those three winged motherfuckers. Though one of them does seem to like Brown Ben Plum quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. His brother has a sword, so we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Davos is in disbelief about Tywin dying. I'm like, you didn't see it coming someday? All the villains die, Davos. Godric carries on about how back in his day, by the way, they drowned dwarfs, but the Septons made them stop. Just want to put that one in there, colorful guy. Uh, he's like, this changes all. And he, Davos requests leave to go send a raven to Stannis. He's so hyped about it. He's like, I have to tell him. So I, I just like this detail there. We've been getting a lot of details about the Septons uh, and the sort of service that they've done throughout Davos's chapters. And this one's, I think, pretty good, you know, telling people, what what if you stopped drowning your children born with dwarfism? That seems bad. Or how they were feeding, like, impoverished people like Davos as a child. And Davos is like, yeah, that was good. So you can kind of see that, like, 
there's, I think, nuance to the way that the Faith of the Seven is, right? There's obviously a corrupt aspect, as we see when it comes to the Great Sept and, and the High Septons. Um, but you can also see why there's, I think, a lot of fervor and a lot of people who are, are buying into the cause and will join up with the cause of the High Sparrow. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's kind of like how I don't understand how people like Stannis, but it's like only in a religious way. <laughs> yeah, you but know. like... These people gave people food. Stannis has never given me food. <laughs> Stannis wouldn't either. Like, even if he had food, he'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> he'd look um, at us and be like, mm, uh, their hips aren't great, so. <laughs> I don't know that they well, are. Well, God, mine are great. God like, rejects that request, saying Stannis soon will learn. But not from either of them, because he refuses to aid this war. He is holy, he is Swiss, he's like, no way. And he gives some background history. He's like, look, the Sunderlands dragged the sisters into the Blackfire Rebellions. I'm not playing that game again. And you need to sit down, Davos, because A, you look like you could fall over, and you need some food. So he requests beer, bread, and sisters stew for him, because he has a lot of monologuing to do to Davos. All of this is made by his daughter's daughter, his granddaughter, Gella. Eliana, do you want to do the food honors here? Because it would not be a Girls Gone Canon podcast without a food description. We do not skip the descriptions. That's sacrilegious. To those of you that skip past the three pages of food descriptions, shame on you. This You're is wrong. legitimately the highlight of the chapter. Like, this is the <sighs> so climax good. of the chapter. It actually I'm is. I'm climaxing <laughs> thinking about it. Like, it's so... <sighs> Alright, so yes, there's beer. And that's like, that's a great touch on it too, that they <laughs> gave him like this nice brown ale. So the beer was brown, the bread black, the stew a creamy white. She served it in the trencher, hollowed out of a stale loaf. It was thick with leeks, carrots, barley, and turnips white and yellow, along with clams and chunks of cod and crab meat, swimming in a stock of heavy cream and butter. It was the sort of stew that warmed a man right down to his bones. Just the thing for a wet, cold night. Davos spooned it up gratefully. I would. I would spoon that I'm up so gratefully. Ugh, it sounds so good. I'm appreciative. I'm grateful. I just, do you want to read it again? No, I'm just kidding, but I'm not really <laughs> kidding. I'm kind of like, do you? I've made this once, the uh, a feast Feast of Ice and Fire book, the fan unofficial recipe book. I've made it once. It's I'd a like good to recipe make it book. again this winter. Yeah, it's a. It sounds like such a good wintry dish, and just so rich. <sighs> anyway, I'm just like sighing and being sad thinking about the soup, uh, the stew. But Godric asks Davos if he's married, and Davos is like, "Yes, I am taken." She put a ring on it. And then Godric says, it's a pity because Gela is not. And he's like, holy women, make the best wives. He then comments that there are red crabs and spider crabs and conquer crabs in this really, really intense stew. And then he says that he doesn't actually usually eat spider crab because it makes him feel half a cannibal because, you know, his sigil's a spider crab white on a gray green field. Uh, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> We're getting a lot of these nods towards Skagos, right? George is playing with us this whole chapter, mentioning Skagos, mentioning little things about it, like half a cannibal. He's poking at us. He's having fun about what's to come. Yeah. Earlier, 
I mentioned that there's some pretty strong cat parallels and how Godric is kind of like a Walder Frey parallel, but then he flips the switch and he's an anti-parallel. But here, especially when when Davos says, uh, I have a wife, and Godric's like, what a shame, could have married my daughter. Reminds me a lot of Walder in that aspect too. Like that and the salt and the bread as well are, are the things that block Davos from maybe being subject to his own red wedding suddenly, right? Like he could have just gotten shotgun married to, uh, not Gela, but to the other daughter. Yeah, I mean, if it were Gela, like, would it be the worst marrying someone who cooks stew like that? Dude, I would marry Gela. I, <laughs> I know we're both she like we're even marrying have to touch me Gella. or see me if she wants. Like, as long as we had that stew, our love would survive. I'm sure. Absolutely. Of it. I think Gela and I could bond over cooking, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So I read too deeply. It doesn't mean anything <laughs> about these crabs, and I was like trying to turn it over and over in my head. I was like, does it mean something? And I don't think it does. But, like, I toyed around with the idea of, like, the spider crabs being fairies and, like, the mummer's dragon and then the conqueror crabs as Daenerys. Um, but I'm pretty sure I'm just making shit up. And also, I'm not sure that there is such thing as a conqueror crab. I tried to look it up. I was like, what is that? I want to eat that. And I don't know that it exists. I think that maybe these are supposed to be, like, king crabs. I kind of, uh... I don't know, I like that because it reminds me of Danny and Stannis in that regard, that we're calling them conqueror crabs instead of king crabs, right? And even of Marine, like with the Your Magnificent stuff going on with Barristan and with the the men still in the Miranese court. Uh-huh. I thought that was interesting. Reminded me a bit of that. Interesting thoughts about crabs, Eliana. I'm really glad when you give me crabs. I'm glad it doesn't make you too crabby. Little itchy, but I think I'll move on with it. Well, let's claw our way forward through this episode. <gasps> I'm just crab walking through. Uh, Godric says they heard rumor that Stannis burnt his hand, and Davos thinks of Alistair, who had been strong and silent until the flames started licking up his legs and he screamed like the rest of them up and down the nation. Davos thinks it could have easily been me. I mean, it really could have, right? They both did crazy shit. Alistair was unlucky because his brothers, his brother really gets off on burning people. And I mean, Alistair wasn't the worst, dude. You know, we no. we met him in the dungeons. He seemed a little savvy, you know, like his yeah. problem was he was a Florent. I mean, that was his biggest problem. He overreached with his big fucking Florent ears. Yeah, but I mean, he had some some good ideas. I mean, I obviously Stannis doesn't like them, but he was like... I don't see how we get out of this. Like, this is how we're going to secure our survival. And then he just, like, cries when he thinks of, like, how lost this causes. But anyways. Yeah, he was obviously devoted. I mean, he's saying the things that Davos isn't. That Davos is thinking. I mean, he wasn't wrong. Yeah, he's saying the things that people, like, feel, you know? Yeah. I mean, Uh, obviously, what, what did he have to lose? His life? Yeah, I mean, he was already in the dungeon anyway, so, like, whatever, and he was just talking to Davos, but the whole thing about the rumor of Stannis burning his hand, right, along with all the reminders of Robert's rebellion at the end of this chapter, it really does bring to mind Ares Targaryen, who was like, you know what seems like a good idea today? Burning people. Burning my hand. Yeah, but Stannis is a good guy, Eliana. He's good guy-coded. <sighs> well, instead... 
Instead, Davos tells Godric, you know what? I did not burn. I, the hand. (laughs) If it didn't happen to me, it never... No, Davos doesn't think that at all. He's just like, shit, I... That just missed me. Anyways, he changes the subject very quickly to, you know what was really cold? Eastwatch. It almost froze me. (laughs) And almost in response, one of Godric's daughters serves Davos some hot, fresh bread. Also amazing. Amazing things are happening in this chapter. And then Davos also notices the webbing in her fingers, and Godric calls it the mark and says that all the Burrells have it. And he's like, this is my daughter's daughter, but the other daughter, and not Gella, and I'm like, George, give her a fucking name. Yeah, right? I mean, on one hand, on one webbed hand, at least Gella got a name, but on the other hand, without the webbing, uh, Hagen's daughter and Godric's other granddaughter right? would like some representation, and I would like to fight George about this. I'm not going to, but I would just like to. I, think I mean, I'd like to names. do a lot of things. Personally, I'd like to eat some cake right now, but, you know, I'd like instead... To- I'd like to eat a lot of things, but like yeah. sisters stew. God. <sighs> Davos considers Godric is sharing his bread with him. He's like, "Huh, this must mean I have guest right. At least I'm going to live for the evening." Godric and the other sister lords do kind of have a black repute, right? And he thinks of Godric's full title, which is Lord of Sweet Sister, Shield of Sisterton, Master of Breakwater Castle, and Keeper of the Night Lamp. So, as we've mentioned countless times, you should know this by now, dear reader, if you're hanging out with us this far along, we don't do the battle sequences often. It's not, like, for us. It's not our thing. I don't analyze them because other people have done it way better, way smarter, more concisely, better than what I could do. So, if you haven't heard about it, you need to check out a few things. First off, the famed Cantus's Night Lamp Theory. And, of course, to enjoy that better, you should check out our friend over at Nauticast, Brendan B. Fish. He has two-part analysis on the Battle of Ice upcoming in the Winds of Winter. Those things are great. Uh, Again, they already did it, so I don't have to. I love that. For me, the gist is Stannis is going to pull his own night lamp, right? We're hearing a lot about the night lamp in this chapter and how it's used to draw people in, smash them against the rocks, and... The theory goes Stannis will pull his own night lamp. He'll create a false fire, burning a giant weirwood, creating a night lamp, and drawing the enemies in with weakened ice because of catapult to catch them. Great theory. Check it out. Links, links, titles, titles. It'll be in the description below, so please do click through. But I do think it's interesting that the Blackwater was kind of an inverse Mm. night lamp theory, right? That Tyrion drew them in and then dropped the chain. Uh, with that same kind of idea with the catapult weakening the ice, but he dropped the chain to weaken them and then blew them up with wildfire once he trapped them. That's kind of the goal of the night lamp theory in opposite, I guess. Now that we're getting closer to mermaid territory, too, the night lamp is kind of like a siren, Mm. right? Like a a sea siren, like Greek mythology-wise, almost. It it reminds me of the sea and of uh, Melisandre a little bit, I guess, falls into that category with Stannis as well. Sirens lure nearby male sailors in Greek mythology with their enchanting music and voices, and they basically shipwreck them in the rocks uh, on some islands, basically. Sometimes it's depicted surrounded by rocks, but the night lamp kind of seems just as much an analog for this kind of siren song idea in battle tactics, as well as a metaphor for Stannis himself and his campaign. 
Back in Davos 1, in a clash of kings, we had Salador saying to him, and this is again just a quote from Salador, it must not mean anything. Now do you see my meaning? Be glad it is just a burnt sword his grace pulled from that fire. Too much light can hurt the eyes, my friend, and fire burns. So, what I'm saying is that metaphorically speaking, Stannis is the night lamp. Because he draws you in with his light and smashes you on the rocks below. Yeah, I absolutely, and I think so. And what you're saying here, right, the the siren thing is, I think, really spot on. We see that the people on the sisters use a similar thing, right, to try and get some boats to crash there. And they're like, mm, we're going to get cool free shit. And I, that's definitely what's going on with Stannis too, right? The the fire and the power, it's luring people like Axel, like Godry Faring, people who think that they're going to get something out of it and following this siren's song, but it's leading them to their destruction. And Stannis himself, right, as well, he's looking at his own sword. He knows what, where it all leads, but he still is going towards that same light and fire. And turns out it's himself. He's the one on fire. And his daughter. Anyway, speaking of those things that people get from boats. Davos <laughs> tastes richer spices in his sister's stew and asks Godric if it was saffron, remembering a feast on Dragonstone where Robert had sent half a fish down the table to him. I thought that was interesting. Brings us back to that brand chapter where he's sending things down to people that he likes. So Robert you know, like Davos enough and was like, give him half a fish and it's an interesting reminder, especially because at that feast I think Wyman Manderley was there Godric says that it is in fact, yes, saffron from Karth, he's like, we also have black pepper from Volantis and he's very generous with the pepper, he's like, I've got 40 chests of pepper, cloves nutmeg, and a pound of saffron he's like, of course, just have some, like, I didn't fucking pay for any of this uh, he took them off of a Slow-eyed maid making for Bravos, who had smashed up against the rocks of the sisters. There's something interesting here that I'm not, uh, it's not a full-fledged thought, but I've just been thinking how interesting it is that we have the three sisters here in the Vale, and of course we have the three sisters in the Free Cities. The three daughters, the three sisters, and how that parallel of, like, they're all big trade cities that have these spices going back and forth. Mm -hmm. And we do hear of this ship before. Back in Danny, I want to say it's Danny 5 in Clash, uh, the slow-eyed maid is a ship she's trying to board to go to Westeros from Karth, from one of the ships she tried to board. So in this chapter, we hear some of that fate of the ship, of what happened to it. But it comes up in the next chapter regarding Danny, and we learn the story about Danny being on it, and Davos thinks, oh, well, that's too bad because that ship crashed, so that girl took that one. She's old news. Uh, but I find it interesting because the only other use of slow-eyed in the story, which slow-eyed is uh, exotic, dark-haired beauty with almond eyes, you know, very exotic, which it really, the slow is from the blackthorn plant, which is really prominent with its dark berries and flowers native to Europe and to Western Asia. But it's only used one other time to describe Taina Merryweather. And I found that interesting with the mirror and the spices and the trade mm. and everything. I was just like, interesting, George, that you kept its use in its uh, two uses in the story. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. Every now and then, George has interesting phrases. For me, some of what was going on there with uh, the ship, right, between the spices 
that were on it and all this talk about the Manderleys and the wealth of White Harbor being this this big trade city and you know again me beating my dead horse about the importance of like this new money and the merchant class these merchant kings and lords in the upcoming books right it's shown by Littlefinger's story in the Sansa chapters especially with that direct reference to spices like saffron there the power of the free cities uh, as Aegon makes his way there and then of course again white harbor which i think we're going to start seeing some of those fruits in this book but we've kind of already seen them in the theon chapters but interesting stuff yeah and it goes kind of hand in hand with this whole mask reveal of godric kind of showing hey i'm not a total asshole uh earlier we talked about how the saffron is worth more in its weight than gold right and in relation to Davos, it's absolutely an analogy. It's implying that the gold and the crown doesn't have the jurisdiction here. Money talks, trade talks for them. Uh, it's pirate rules, right? Like, this isn't just you're on the king's road and you're paying your fucking taxes to the city watch. Like, this is like you live out in the boonies and no one has law over you. And this is kind of a little finger outlook, right? Like you're saying, Godric is implying that Davos is rare like Saffron and more valuable to him than giving him up to the crown, giving him up to the Lannisters. And Godric indeed kind of reveals his hand to Davos. He's being a little vulnerable here and showing him, hey, where do you think I got it? Ha ha, that's how this place works. And this also mm -hmm. foreshadows Wyman, right? Because he's going to come with the same shrewd outlook and reveal that the external did not match the internal. He's going to lift the mask, big reveal. And just like the saffron that crashed against the wall for him to steal the saffron, Davos doesn't really make it to his original destination from the first jump. Like this whole trip, the whole point was that he was going to go straight to White Harbor, get their high five, go back to Stannis. And now he's going to end up going all the way to Skagos. The ship carrying Saffron crashes into the wall, and Davos is going to go crash into the storms around Skagos, too. Yes. There's going to be a lot of going around. Big quest for Davos ahead. If you give a mouse a cookie, a lot of things going ahead. They keep asking for more and more. And if you give a mouse a king's blood? Pretty much. King's blood cookie. That actually sounds really gross. Not like Sister Stew. With Saffron in it. Fuck. Anyway... Davos watches Godric laugh, eyeing his teach. Some are yellow, some are decaying, but all are there. So that's, a, I think, an interesting, it's an interesting indication of the sort of life that they lead, right? Like, it seems like they're thrifty. It seems like they don't have too much. But if you look beyond the surface, they're living quite comfortably here if he has all of his teeth and the quality mm -hmm. of their food, all of these things. He thinks on Godric's forebears, who had been pirate kings, until, of course, the Starks came down on them. And I just I just thought the detail about pirate kings is interesting, because that's coming forward in, you know, by the end of Dance 2, with some of the stuff going on on, I think, the Stepstones. Yes, absolutely, with Orain Waters, and with Salador retreating, and- And Euron, even. Yeah, Euron, absolutely, absolutely, especially with what we were talking about with the belly of the beast. Yes. <sighs> well, since those pirate kings, the Sistermen left piracy to Salador's type, and instead the Sistermen focused on luring and smashing ships and taking their goods, dooming captains on stormy nights. Godric says the storm Sirens. did Davos a kindness, for he comes too late. Wyman Manderley has already bent the knee to the Freys and the Lions, not to Stannis, 
white harbors full of frays and inbound lion ships. He reminds Davos the Manderleys have been great southern lords until they overreached themselves, and the Starks had let them and their gold into the north and kept their religion. Davos doesn't understand, though. He's like, didn't didn't the Freys and Lannisters kill Wyman's son? Yes, he sure did. And Wyman was totally mad. He was all like, vengeance, I'm going to live on bread and wine, which, low-key, a lot of bread and wine. Till he gets that vengeance, uh, but by day's end, he bent the knee. Yeah, wah, so wah, wah. some tip off here that something, something's not adding up. We're going to see that. I mean, you, this is a reread. You all know what happens. Um, Godric heard it from ships that go between the harbor and the sisters. Uh, the sisters sell over there. They export crabs, fish, and goat cheese. And then the harbor sells wood, wool, and hides. And I mean, dude, they're... They're just selling crabs, fish, and goat cheese. Things are so great here. Godral says that Manderly is fatter than ever. Also that his word is garbage and that the phrase are bringing home the fat bag of his son's bones. It's like, bruh, chill. He has no chill. He's kind of mean and like, I, I mean, respect I'm gonna him. be real. I-, I respect it, but I too am living off of bread and wine right now. So you know, like lay off, bro. Well, he said he was gonna live off of bread and wine, and then he's like, then Manderly gave that up real quick. And, uh, and I mean, whom's amongst us has not said we're just gonna only live off of wine and whatever, and then been like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take harder drinks, or eat more food. So whom's some call us? that courtesy to bring a man his dead son's bones. Had it been my son, I would have returned the courtesy and thanked the phrase before I hanged them. But the fat man's too noble for that. Godric is obviously separating himself from the likes of Walder Frey in these parts, right? He's declaring the phrase were shameful, that was an abomination what they did, that bullshittery that occurred. Uh, and it seems to be the common feel in the North, right? Like, most people agree that the Red Wedding was kind of bullshit, except for, like, the Boltons. When... <laughs> Catelyn sends Ned's bones on to be interred, and they may be intercepted, as we know, as we find out in this book. Davos has no bones to bury. He's lost his own bones, his son's bones, all of it. And I'm not saying that it was at all theoretically possible to get his son's bones, right? Like, they, nobody even knew his sons. Half the people are like, who? Sorry, how do you pronounce it? Allard, you said? Like, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know them. Uh, No one knows them, but, like, it's not theoretically possible, but, like, if it was possible, would Stannis have made an effort to get those bones for Davos? I don't know. I don't know about that. But that isn't... He's not sentimental, is all. No. And I think it's an interesting question when you bring up his... their bones, right? It's... Here, Godrell is saying that it had it been my son, he would have sworn vengeance. It reminds me of the questions that Jamie asked during his chapter. He's like, aren't I supposed to feel vengeful now that my son has died? Shouldn't I be tearing my hair out and weeping? And interestingly, we also, I guess Davos has that brief moment where he's like, I'm going to kill Melisandre. And that's his moment <laughs> of like, I'm going to kill people because of my sons. I'm going to murder. But uh, after that, you know, he's kind of dealt with that grief or maybe he's just compartmentalized it here, but he hasn't, he's not trying to swear vengeance on the Lannisters or anything, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, nor is he trying to do so against Stannis. So I think that's really interesting. Another thing that's going on, right? You saw, you talked about 
the way Godrell is separating himself from that Walder imagery here. And I think that kind of explains a bit of like why he's so clear about giving Davos that bread under his roof and doing guest right. They might not have a lot here on the sisters, but and they might be considered, you know, lower lords, just descended from pirate kings, but at least on this they have that honor. Yeah, and there's even something to it again, yes, like totally kind of pirate law. They're off the beaten path, right? Like, they are mm-hmm. not a main city. They're not a main place. So I find that interesting in a way. It is a little bit kind of like how the Twins is and how it's like these vast big halls, gray and dark and etc. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Another interesting dinner, not as red as it could be, but probably gave Godric some cause to be concerned, is that he had had a supper with the phrase as they came to the north. He remembers one of the Freys was named Rhaegar, who we'll meet. He had almost laughed in his face. Rhaegar had lost his wife and hoped to get a new one in White Harbor. I know a Rhaegar that was looking for a northern bride once. Uh, It it seems a marriage pact is in order between the Freys and the Manderleys, Godric supplies. Davos feels pretty shitty about this. He's like, ah, fuck, we're so fucked if this is true. So fucked. Stan is doomed. Not the rest of the foreshadowing. This is the first one, Davos says. He's like, I've never felt fear about our campaign. This is the very first time in all of my chapters that I've ever felt worry about it. White Harbor was the mouth of the north to Winterfell's heart, and its position geographically and its climate and its silver was kind of crucial to surviving the winter through the north. Davos is like, fuck, I have to try. He begs Godric to help him reach White Harbor, and Godric's like, and starts tearing his bread trencher apart, eating it, and gives a little speech about his distaste for the Northerners. A lot of that distaste, right, stems from the Rape of the Three Sisters, which happened 2,000 years ago, but Sisterton never forgot, which I think is actually impressive if you think about it. 2,000 years ago is a long-ass time ago, like, fucking Roman Empire time, and I don't know many people who still hold uh, grudges from that time, but... He's like, they were a free people before, but they were forced to bend the knee to the Eyrie to get the Northmen out. Then for another thousand years, the Wolf and Falcon fought over the sisters till the flesh had all been eaten from the islands. And as for King Stannis, Godric isn't very into him either. Back when he was master of ships, Stannis sent ships into the Sisterton's port without Godric's leave, which caused Godric to have to hang a dozen of his friends. He's like, they were actually men kind of like you, Davos. I'm just like, he should have gotten the Salador. I mean, they were all men like him. All of them. He just happened to let Stannis chop his fingers off. He's just like the rest of them. Yep. Could have been him. I mean, could've Alistair Florent, it could have been him. This, any of those men, that could have been him. The problem is that Davos thinks he's the exception to the rule when he is not the exception. Anyways, Stannis had threatened Godric's life if he saw ships going aground due to the night lamp losing light. Godric says, I had to eat his arrogance. Now he comes north humbled with his tail between his legs. Why should I give him any aid? Answer me that. Davos thinks, because he's your rightful king and strong, and just, but he can't say that. He studies Godric, wondering what he wants of Davos. Godric ends up mocking his wordlessness, and Davos finds his words and says, The lion's dead. Who now rules the city? 
Godric responds that Cersei Lannister does, and that that is the reason that Davos is still here breathing and not in chains, because were it Kevin Lannister, shit might actually get done. <laughs> For real, yeah. though. Um, Sometimes. Turns out both Stannis and Cersei, then, they're both bad at paying people. Nope. I also just kind of love this scene. First of all, I think Davos being quiet, right? And being like, everyone shut the fuck up, I need time to think. He doesn't say it, but but that's how he feels, and I relate to that. I'm like, everyone, I need I need time to think about what I'm going to say. But it also really, I think, is a testament to just how quick Davos is. He's literally just learned a bit ago that Tywin Lannister is dead, and that Tyrion is no longer in King's Landing, which... Davos may or may not know Tyrion, but as we know, Tyrion was a big part of the brains behind the Lannister operation, again, in the background of Davos' storyline. And Davos assesses his current situation, and he very much rightly deduces that, so this means that Kevin Lannister cannot be in charge. It all shows that Davos is just very, very good at politicking, even though before he used to think that he didn't know how to do it, right? He's just gotten this information a bit ago in a very high-stress situation where his life and his freedom, many things are at stake, and he's figured out what this means for the overall Westerosi political situation at the moment. And then he draws on some of what he knows about reading people that he learned from his days as a smuggler, right? He's like, what should I say to move Godric? And like, I'm going to tell you, Stannis would have been told him, well, you should do what I say because I'm your rightful king and just. But Davos is like, that's not good enough here. In his previous chapters, we see that he reports to Stannis what he saw people do with the news of the Lannister bastards and what they cared about and who they supported and what he thinks that they might have actually felt what that public sentiment might have really been. And he does that here with Godric. And he takes a bet on Godric's alliances by asking Godric to bet on him and to bet on Stannis. Yeah, he's definitely very hands-on right now, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> hands-on, <laughs> king's hand-on, but hired. Uh, but he, he is. You're like, hiring not... yourself. <laughs> and what of it? <laughs> what of it? <gasps> but it, it's not, it, it's definitely a different thing here because he's doing it in action without being under the watchful eye, right? Like, here he is truly speaking with the king's voice, with his own voice for the king. And it shows that he's progressed and that he learns very quickly about what angle he needs to approach Godric with because he watches and he realizes Godric doesn't want to lose. He's prideful. He doesn't want to be on the losing side. And Davos begins to kind of give the military repertoire to him. He says, Stannis held Storm's End against the Tyrells, the Redwines. He took Dragonstone from the last Targs. He smashed the Iron Fleet. The boy king won't prevail against him. But Godric says, well, the boy king has wealth. He has Casterly Rock's wealth, Highgarden's power, the Boltons, the Frey. But he remembers what Ned Stark told his father once very long ago in this very hall. He says, in this world, only winter is certain. Davos is surprised that Ned Stark would have ever come here. And John Aaron sent back defiance. Only Goldtown remained loyal to the throne at the time. Stark had crossed mountains, finding a fisherman to carry him across the bite. But a storm struck. The fisherman drowned, and his daughter got Eddard to the sisters before they lost the ship. To repay him, Eddard left her with a bag of silver and a bastard. Jon Snow, he says. Yeah. So, I'm going to take a quick tangent here. Talk about R plus L equals J things. 
Obviously, we know that this isn't John's mother, right? We know this. We're a podcast that uh, believes that. And (laughs) there are a couple of things here about that, right? When David and Dan answered George's question of who John's mother is, uh, and it's later revealed and confirmed that they did, in fact, answer this question correctly, um, and and that convinced George to allow them to um, agree to adapt these show the show to his books and of course when david and dan answered this question to george right it would have been prior to the publication of a dance with dragons so this very moment would not have been out in the public yet or or they would it wouldn't have existed they would not have read it also the timing is off based on the timelines that uh, many people put together such as jen snow and private major and and folks like that John is born too late to be Ned's son by the fisherman's daughter because John is younger than Rob. And at this point, Ned has not yet married Catelyn to conceive Rob. Yeah, so it's literally, it's not possible. So mid-282 AC, probably like June, July-ish, our kind of world, that's when John Aaron would have received Aerys' demands, right? You have the attorney in the first quarter of the year. Right, early fake spring. John Aaron gets the demands middle of the year. Goldtown, battle at Goldtown is later on in 282. So Ned would have had to hit Sisterton probably in between midsummer and autumn, which makes sense because the storms are really, really bad in autumn in this area, right? And his marriage to Catalan would have been early 283 AC, with Rob being born toward the end of the year and John after that. So it's too early. It's just not possible. It can't be the fisherman's daughter, but it's a it's, it's a fun possible. tale. I I kind of wonder well, did Ned plant this himself? So I think that is definitely in there. Like I definitely think. Get ready. The fisherman's daughter is a red herring. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was sitting on that one. I was waiting for that one. Uh, it's a red herring. No, it is though. <laughs> You've been waiting and- for us to get here for so long. because here's the thing is there's only one so like this would have been the end of the year right so it could have happened like he could have knocked someone up but it's not likely for it to be anyone we know now something that could be accurate since you know we do have this quote saying that some characters weren't just bolted down to the floor during the rebellion there is someone who is of an age with Rob and John could be a month or two older than them could have had the mom coming north talking about Mira Reed just putting it out there that it could have been Mira Reed's mother traveling north to go meet Mira Reed's father hmm Holland Reed wouldn't have been there with them if he'd be going north and if she went with him yeah I think that could have been somewhere else but and I think you do yeah, I do too. Two. It's just an idea. I'm just saying that it could be. I don't think it's here, but but it would make sense timing-wise. This is the only thing that would make sense timing-wise for me to yeah. read. Anyways, so, just a thought, just a thought. Well, yeah, I wonder if Ned planted this. I think it's a plant, and I think that it's one Rumor. of the many plants, you know? I mean, you wanted Winterfell talking about it. He said, don't ever talk about it again to me, but also, like, he said it on purpose. You need people to talk about it, dude. What if it came out with fucking blonde hair and purple eyes? 
Yeah, what was he going to do? <laughs> the seed is strong. Yeah, it is, motherfucker, you idiot. You're lucky the Stark seed is... St- That's what's so crazy to me about the entire all of R plus L equals J is that Ned spends the whole first book trying to figure out the seed is strong and we spend the whole series trying to understand it when it really meant Jon Snow. Yeah. Anyways. 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 I digress. Back to Davos. We veered off. We went off track and... I don't want to talk about the Sword of the Morning. We got hit by a storm. My God. But I think we have a last speech from our Lord of Sisterton. Indeed. My father sat where I sit now when Lord Eddard came to Sisterton. Our maester urged us to send Stark's head to Ares to prove our loyalty. It would have meant a rich reward. The Mad King was open-handed with them as pleased him. By then we knew that John Aaron had taken Goldtown, though. Robert was the first man to gain the wall and slew Mark Grafton with his own hand. This Baratheon is fearless, I said. He fights the way a king should fight. Our maester chuckled at me and told us Prince Rhaegar was certain to defeat this rebel. That was when Stark said, In this world, only winter is certain. We may lose our heads, it's true, but what if we prevail? My father sent him on his way with his head still on his shoulders. If you lose, he told Lord Eddard, you were never here. No more than I was, said Davos Seaworth. What a chapter and woe, woe. It's an interesting chapter. It really is. And and sets the pace for an I've interesting... I've seen a lot of people complain about it, saying it was unnecessary. I could see that. I can I, I can see the argument <gasps> for that, I think. I can't believe you. <laughs> I think um, it, it serves to give a lot of character exposition on Davos and build him up. And kind of show where he is. But I can see the argument for that. Interesting. I see where your loyalties lie, and it's not to our one true king. Good to know. <laughs> Who's our one true king? Stannis Av. Oh, Stannis. <laughs> well, Davos does have his loyalties to his one true king, and again, we're seeing his knack for politics and his appeal to Godric Burrell, and I do wonder to what extent, when it comes to uh, talking about one true kings, like... In the speech that Burrell remembers, and talking about how when Robert was fighting in the rebellion, he thinks that Robert fights the way a king should fight. Not that not that he rules that a way a king should rule, but anyways, he thinks that Robert should fight the way a king should fight, and that's why part of what convinces them to fall in with Robert, even though at this time Robert was not actually campaigning for the throne, right? He was just fighting he was just fighting because he loved to fight, because Ares wanted him dead, and also some guy stole his betrothed, and Later on, they're like, let's just do it. Let's just make Robert the figurehead. But anyways, I wonder to what extent, with that memory, Stannis is actually benefiting from that legacy of fighting the way a king should fight, right? The legacy of that brother that he hated, the brother that he loved, and how much it's really giving him and Davos an edge here when it comes to winning over Godric Burrell. Yeah. And we've talked so much about these Davos and Ned parallels, but the thing that sticks out to me the most this reread is that they're both championing lackluster kings. 
right? Uh, kings that, yes, they are better than the current tyrannical regime, kind of, but they aren't powerful enough reasons on their own to be like this sparkling chivalric story of glamour and suspense, right? Like, if you're a normal person, you're not going to sit there chanting, King Stannis, King Robert. Uh, you'll see the flaws in them and realize, wow, the feudal system is fucked. There might be some people that disagree with me that are out there listening, and they're wrong, and that's okay, you know? And uh, it, it really shines through for Ned, I think, with saving the children, and I think that's what Davos's plot will have to echo, especially as we get into some of the Rickon things. But Ned's choice to save the children, even Joffrey, because of his own personal beliefs, because of not trusting his liege to keep them safe, because they're mm -hmm. not the ones who've done wrong. Right? Like, he believes that maybe they could make this better world where the sins of our father don't dictate the person we are and the person we become. Much like Davos, this all rings true for Davos. Uh, but it's the methodology that lacks. And it's interesting because it, it kind of reminds me of, like, I don't know, people from our parents, for example's generation. I know our parents are similar-ish ages. It's like, my parents are in their similar range. But, uh, it... Like, there's something about that whole generation that wants better. And we see it with cattle and we see it with Davos. They want better, but yet they still cling to this system that has time and time again rejected them and hurt them and crippled them and used them and exploited them. But they keep returning to it, even though they do want better. They're not bad people. They just keep returning it in hopes it's going to help them. Um, and I know that I see some people from my parents' generation that, you know, they really just believe that the system's going to help them and nourish them in some better progressive way, uh, like Catelyn hoping that it saves her family while it's literally cannibalizing her and her sons and daughters. Davos spends that whole last chapter in Storm undermining his king, but he's loyal enough to a fault that he's still out here canvassing for Stannis, right, for the cause, because he thinks he has nothing and is nothing without Stannis's gold. But that's the joke, because Stannis doesn't have gold. Stannis has nothing backing him up. Godric Burrell is kind of this vision of what Davos could become if he doesn't choose a side, right? He could be sitting at his own little shack, just waiting for the war to happen one way or another. If he continues to dance this dance in the middle of supporting Stannis, but also rebuking what Stannis stands for, in the same breath that Davos is like, I'm loyal to Stannis, he's thinking about how Stannis's campaign is broke. How the people support it suck and are all bad and how he can't trust his king to make the right choices like not burning a young child for blood magic. Uh, something's gotta give here. Something's gotta give, Davos. Yeah, uh, he's he's tied up in this idea and again, maybe that's part of why he and Stannis see eye to eye in some ways that Stannis is the rightful king and he thinks that Stannis is strong and that he is just but as we've said before, Yes, Stannis might be just, but maybe he's too just, right? He's he's just mm -hmm. also a man, uh, beyond just beyond being a just man. And <laughs> you're talking about the parallels between Davos and Ned, and I think that I that really comes through, especially in the, in this chapter uh, when, as you said, Godric Burrell brings that up, right? And mm -hmm. It's the same plea, right? Both of them are saying, hey, I know that this seems like a wild bet, right? But the other side isn't strong. The other side isn't better. And they can see that in them. And I mean, what Ned says doesn't inspire much more confidence than what 
Davos necessarily does, right? But they're trying to say, like, hey, bet on us, we're the underdogs. But maybe the underdogs won in another story, and but that story's over. This is a different one now. And they do and they don't in some ways, right? Ned was the underdog and won in one epoch, and then he lost his head in another. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. I mean, again, it's it's getting into these arcs when they're already progressed, right? Like, Davos wasn't at the start of his story when we started his chapters in Clash. He was well into his arc. Ned was well into his arc. He was in the mm-hmm. mid-end. It's over for Nettie Boy, as we know. Uh, and same with Stannis. You know, like, Stannis, you already had the transformation. Yeah. Nothing's changing, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. and for I mean, for Davos, I think it's that I think that you know, it, it's obviously a fictionalized story. If all of us can always transform and change whenever we want, because um, we're not storybook characters. Uh, but for Davos, it'll be interesting. I think he survives. Um, oh yeah, and his his. His loss has to be something very interesting and meaningful. It will be centered around children, like you said, as it was for Ned. And I mean, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I, I mean, Davos is really a great, a great way to look at the Quentin or the quote from Quentin chapters, right? Of men's lives have meaning, not their deaths. Uh, yeah, everything that Davos has done and fought against and stayed alive for in saving Edric and in trying to do the right thing in the face of all that is scary and shadowy and terrifying, he has stayed true to his heart. And Now he just yeah. needs to realize, you know, that he can fly. He can be like a bird on his own. And I think he's starting to. We see him as a much more confident version of himself in this chapter. Or maybe just yeah. faking it till he makes it. But he's been doing that and he's done it here, right? He He's successful and he's street smart in the way that, you know, talking about Quentin Martel, Quentin's not street smart, and that's why he's dead. Davos My is. My stupid boy. My stupid, beautiful boy. He's a yeah. sweet, stupid yeah. boy. Yeah, Davos has learned, and he's and... continuing to evolve. And I don't know, I think uh, I think we all should go away to a remote island of cannibals to find ourselves sometime. I thought you were going to say a remote island full of delicious sister stew and i was like sounds way better you know and besides what's in the stew yeah i mean it's the crabs and the cannibalism and why is it named sister stew why is it named fucking after people who knows well at least it's not a bowl of brown listeners you're gonna find out as we move forward in davos in a dance with dragons indeed but until then you know you can find us on social media let us know your thoughts. Find us on Twitter at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N. Or if you'd like, you can send us an email. Perhaps you want to also send us some dog pictures. You can do that at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And again, don't forget, you can send in your own version of Girls Gone <sighs> Canon episodes. <sighs> don't forget to subscribe to us on the platform that you listen to podcasts. If you have Spotify, click follow. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Amazon, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Acast, you name it, we're there. Look it up. Press follow. Press like. Make sure you get all of the newest updates. 
Yes. And of course, again, we do have a Patreon. You can find us on patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And this month we are going to also be sailing around the sea to the free city of Kohor and talking about that for our special episode for patrons $5 and up. And we have our Discord. Yes, we have a Discord channel. It is a private server that if you are a patron $10 and up, you will be able to gain access to the clubhouse where lots of shenanigans happen, including a monthly brunch slash happy hour where we kick back, video voice chat with you, hang out, do silly presentations. This month is going to be about birds for our friend Cassidy's birthday who loves birds and works with them. So please drop by again, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. As always, I have been one of your hosts. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Did you say your name or did it freeze on me? Oh, I don't think I said my name. <laughs> you just told them you were not one of their they hosts. They know who I no, am. No, they don't call me. If you don't remind them, they won't know. You have to tell them. I've been one of your hosts, Chloe. I'm sorry. <laughs> God, I'm so sorry. You, you might all be confused. Who's with me? Who's even doing this podcast with me? One of your hosts, Eliana. Who knows? A mystery. <laughs> Fuck. We're gonna fucking talk to you guys next week. God. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>